0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Barefoot Mediator podcast news and views from Jane Gunn and guests. In this episode, I speak with David Marin, who is a global forecaster who shares geopolitical and financial forecasts. We discuss breaking the spell of denial, how individuals and businesses can face reality, create a strategy for survival and stay grounded and optimistic in the times we are living in. again David.
1: Hello again Jane.
0: (laughs) So I look back David it was about a year ago that we did our original podcast which I think we entitled From Consciousness to Catastrophe or From Catastrophe
1: Consciousness to Catastrophe. Yes. Catastrophe to Catastrophe or Consciousness was what it was called.
0: Perhaps that was it. Catastrophe or Consciousness. So um that's in the records if people want to go back and listen to that but we've moved on a year and wanted to catch up with you and think about where we're at now in terms of uh, recognizing conflict and being able to break what we call the spell of denial how do we uh, so just to frame this and one of the things that it for me is very recognisable in conflict is that people deny danger, disbelief prevails over reality, and they fail to make plans. And before we go down that route, I just, for those that haven't heard you before, David, just reintroduce yourself and tell us just a tiny bit about your background.
1: So my background started as a
0: physicist and geophysicist. I spent
1: three years in a Papua New Guinea jungle where I saw the first collective human behavioural patterns, where one person's energy could charge a tribe, usually in a hostile sense. And then the emotion would discharge like a capacitor and they would be vacant and then they'd carry on. Mm -hmm. And I made a career leap and ended up on the trading floors of JP Morgan. Knew nothing about finance when I walked in the door. And my first observation was, oh, modern man's the same as Papua New Guineans. We share a collective emotions. Mm -hmm. And those collective emotions actually govern how markets operate And as collective psychology, which I've used in managing hedge funds all these years, until 9-11 happened, and I asked myself the question, is this just a one-off event, or did it come about because America is actually in decline, and the intelligence services competing, not sharing information, would be one of the markers? And if so, how could I determine the answer to that question? And there wasn't enough price data, basically, from markets of 100 billion years I need another model. So I built a five stages of empire model back in 02, which had five distinct stages of social organization. And then I spent five years researching everything that moved every empire. And I was just really shocked to see the same cycle repeated over time in history, expansion by demographics, contraction by negative demographics. Same thing at the same stages and battles were the clocks of empires in effect. And wars are not always the same. There are civil wars. There's wars of expansion, wars of contraction. They have very different energies as the two systems lock horns. And since then, I've included a theory which is called human anti-entropy, which explains why we create social organisms, and they're basically designed to co- create coherence and push back the entropy of the universe, which is how all living things survive. We try and order them with social coherence. Empires are the biggest structures we've created, but of course, we've had an empire that just became old and stayed there. There wouldn't be any human development. So as it becomes sequescent and moves into decline, even though it looks powerful, new systems rise up into the power vacuum and challenge it in the process of hegemonic challenge. They're much more lateral and expansive versus a more linear contractive phase. And wars start to break out. One, it's the war of contraction and defense, and the other it's a war of expansion. And that process creates hegemonic challenge and then the new system rises to a new peak, and that's been human evolution. So wars are intrinsic to our evolution. That Even though we hate them, despise them, promise never to do it again, we're like drug addicts. It's intrinsic to who we are. So the first thing to remove is this idea that we're more civilised than our ancestors, Mm -hmm. because every century people thought they were more civilised than their ancestors, and it still happened. Mm -hmm. So that starts to explain the inevitability of conflict. And you mentioned the title. And... The title was linked catastrophe or consciousness to why I started Global Forecaster, which was to share this information with people rather than just use it to make money for our investors to share it so that you could become more aware of these patterns and literally reframe the way you think using these models, which confers the same sense of predictability that we've generated and proven with a staggering record. So people can think differently about events, hopefully on the journey to become more aware. What is fascinating about society is it's probably the least aware it could ever be for a phenomenon we'll talk about of the lateral linear balance. Our Western society is highly linear and therefore very blind to what's about to happen to us or is happening to us, which is where the denial comes from, which we're about to address.
0: Yeah, so we talked quite a lot last time about lateral versus linear thinking. And I'm interested in how the shift up the balance between those two ways of thinking shifts, because I think we discussed before that people are uh, naturally one or the other. But that the balance of power between those two shifts, doesn't it? You know, who's actually able to guide and empower where society is traveling whether it's that's being thought about in lateral terms or whether we're following a a linear pattern in
1: terms of well expansion is governed by lateralness adaptation against entropy and so all systems that expand really start to manifest lateral leadership on on suit many many levels And countries and empires aren't built by governments, they're built by individuals. that governments then assimilate into the system. And conversely, at the top, when now you're an empire and there are no entropic events, who needs a maverick to solve the problem? Just sheer power of the empire solves the problem. And there's a civil war at the top where the linear side kick out the maverick side. And by the time you end up into overextension and decline, the maverick lateral capabilities that created productivity, new ideas, literally is kicked out of town. And then you go into the decline phase, as America has since 9-11. And to compensate for loss of productivity, you start printing more and more money for what's left. And it's like a ship whose engines shut off and just it's so massive, it keeps moving through the water for longer than you'd imagine through momentum. And that's the momentum phase. What's interesting is the sophistication of money printing, has allowed it to happen for a great deal of time relative to the declining phase. And I think the lateral side of our societies have been ostracized and pushed out to the point where they're suffering a sort of disenfranchisement because we have the most extreme linear construct around our leaders that just perpetuates disaster after disaster. And for the lateral thinking people, um, you know, they, they're just incredulous, but they have no voice. And the Barrington Declaration is a really good example of how it just wasn't 4,000 people who were highly educated were rejected as inconvenient. Yeah, a very good example.
0: So the lateral thinkers, I mean, they'll be both listening to this, and it, uh, we, we've discussed before that it's not one that's good or one that's bad, but there are different roles for these people in society. We're um,
1: symbiotic.
0: Yes, symbiotic. Um, and that, well, if we're looking to uh, to move into a different phase of society or in, uh, we need to find the lateral thinkers um, and somehow empower them. Is that That's,
1: right? So uh, so what happens, as often happens to any enfranchised group or people, they refuse to let go of their power base because without it, they lose everything. and the only way the power base changes is in tropic change. So one form of change was the Brexit civil war, which if it had been a shooting civil war like the English civil war, would have guaranteed lateralization because in war, all leaders are lateral who are successful because linearity doesn't work as the Russians have found out in the Donbass, doing the same thing, driving down a road and finding that your front tank and your rear tank of your column are hit by javelins and then as you drive off the road, you drive into mines, and then what's left is destroyed by artillery. It's been going on since the initial invasion. They still haven't adapted, and they're not winning. Good example. No natural leader, given the freedom to operate, would be conducting the same process. Yet the Russians are, because their hierarchical and individual tactical thought processes are so limited with the process of Putin driving it forwards. So when you look at that process, Essentially, what we're we're talking about is this sort of mechanism whereby if a good example of today. So Boris Johnson, whoever he was, broke Britain out of Europe to create a new paradigm. He had no strategic construct, no idea of how to manage the ship in the ocean. And his moral construct was not even appropriate. And if you just look at some of the texts coming out, He didn't have any ability to look at a graph and say, that doesn't make sense. There was no linear part of his thought process. Now, Thatcher, in comparison, if you showed her a graph that was out of date, she would have picked it up in five seconds and said, I'm not making a decision on poor data. But that wasn't Boris's capability. He was so lateral. He had no linear balance. The best people actually have both qualities, that you have a lateral intuitive thought and you can then articulate it with structure. And Thatcher was like that. Blair was like that which is why both of them changed the landscape they were in Mm -hmm. so if you look at Boris he got the ship into open waters was ejected quite rightly for inability to manage it Trust tried to do the the appropriate measures finally enact Brexit changes and for various reasons there was a linear kickback which ejected her and now we have super linear Sunak and Sunak did the iterative thing with the Northern Ireland agreement and no quantum changes iteration made it better by iteration no quantum changes he heralds it as a great victory and yet he's failing to look up and realize it's so inconsequential compared to the fact we're at war with russia and we're not spending any money on defense and the signals to Putin are the country in europe that most supports ukraine is actually exposing themselves because they're too lazy to defend themselves now that signal is a disaster And in any period of peace, Sudak might have got away with it, but he will not because the action he focused on is a micro action compared to the bigger picture that requires a removal of denial and focus of capability.
0: So one of the things we said we would look at today, David, is is this idea of planning. So yes, some people are in denial. Some people deny danger. They disbelieve that things are about to get worse. But if they can shift to needing to make a plan what might they do what kind of plans might they make so 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 first of all you've got to map the likely terrain mm.
1: and 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 the work that we do at global forecaster is an accurate predictor of human behaviors that's uncanny mm. the fact that russia invaded ukraine and ineffectively i would say that world war 3 has started just as history looks at the invasion of Manchuria or um, the Czechoslovakian threatened invasion and peace deal, which was really the beginning of aggression. And finally, we recognize Poland, but it was before that. Russia sits as that marker. And two decades ago, I made the prediction it would take place from 2022 onwards because of a commodity cycle that keeps repeating, that drives us to, to accelerate our competition. So none of this should be a surprise if People have spent the time looking at how these constructs work, all available on my website in the open theory section. Mm. So what does it look like? Well, we would like to think, and I think one of the reasons why people respond to Ukraine is because we are at war in Iraq and at war in Afghanistan, inverted commas, and nothing changed at home. But those are pretty much expeditionary wars, and they were in no part a proxy war between nuclear superpowers. This is a completely different magnitude, yet I think at some level people are thinking or choosing to think that it's just another case of someone else's war. It won't come to us. Unfortunately, it is, because we sit at the time where decaying democracies are trying to fight up rising autocracies, and if it wasn't for China, none of it would happen, but China's rising energy can agglomerate a decaying Russia, can agglomerate an Iran, a North Korea, a Belarus. Anyone who believes in autocracy, they are gathering around them. Remove China and none of this will be happening. But China is a centerpiece. Its economy on a purchasing power parity level is bigger than America's. It's invested in weapons and arms, and it's created hegemonic weapons, which literally weaken America's ability to project power. In effect, they can negate American carrier power, which is the basis of global, you know, Pax America. So all of these are facts. They're not, you know, hypothesis. We've had we've had the manifested Russia invading Ukraine. We've got hypersonic weapons, which means the US Navy can't defend Taiwan if they want to. And we've got this accelerating process where the Chinese can't afford to see Putin lose, and yet he is losing on the battlefront. This is his offensive. There's no more behind it because he can't operate with combined arms weapons. Um, he can't make a difference in the battlefield. And now he's just waiting for the hammer blow to fall from the Ukrainians that will choose their point of contact and he won't be able to stop it. And the Chinese have watched this conflict very closely because they are drawing every lesson from this battlefield into their forces with an urgency that should make us worried. Because why be? Why are you so urgent to make your forces combat ready because you're preparing to use them? The question no one answers. So we've got this chain of events. China can't afford to see the Russia go down. China is now forced to intervene. It's provided aid through the Wagner Group, and now we know that the Americans are from intelligence sources, and I think we have to consider them to be highly reliable. They they have a good track record of when they announce this. They're inside the decision curves of both China and Russia. This is taking place, and I can see the strategic imperative. So what are the consequences of America, of China providing lethal aid to Russia? Well, there will be sanctions. Sanctions like the same types of sanctions that we've seen against Russia. Now, how much lethal aid is going to flow from China to Russia? A lot, because it will take a lot to turn the tide of war. So this isn't going to be have a few drones, have a few of these. This will be enough weapons to flood the battlefield to change the outcome. And so our response will be to ratchet up the process of sanctions which bifurcates the manufacturing base of the world from the marketplace. Now that is our our, our most benign outcome at the present day.
0: Yeah, and that's that's, that's the owners, um, well, not many business owners, manufacturing, for example, blanket. Um, so, so this is the
1: first the first concern to start to plan for is bifurcation, West China autocratic democratic worlds and how do your supply chains and markets work and operate through such a dislocation and then the next one which is you know we talked about this process we somehow think that what happened to our ancestors is different from us because we're so vastly more aware and superior to anyone before we won't do the same things and yes we're more educated yes we have more information But we still have the same brain stems and collective connections, and we're completely unconscious of how they operate, as I alluded to on a trading floor, which has the best, most intelligent people you'll find of the era that I worked in, and they still did it. So believe me, we are going to do this. We are doing it again. And what mistakes are we making? We are making the fundamental error that the liberal West... And I say liberal because we believe in freedom. And yes, we've had our history of making aggressive actions, but generically, it takes quite a lot for a a a democracy to go to war, are facing expanding autocracies that have completely different agendas, that are run by people that fit into what I call the 2% of the malevolent category of humanity, sociopaths, psychopaths that have no feelings for the people they lead or the consequences of their actions. And what we tend to do as relatively other spectrum of humanity is project how we think onto them and if you listen to them they project how they think onto us so if you listen to putin's speeches or she's speeches their internal workings manifest in their speeches as they did with hitler and what we tend to then do is listen and go oh, he's just saying that that's just how he communicates but if you'd read Mein camp you knew what hitler was going to do one of the things they have a real hallmark is they tell you what they're going to do yeah. putin's Told us what he was going to do and he did it. She's told us what he's going to do and he's going to do it. So we need to get out of this process of thinking everyone's like us and understand that denial of the liberal West allowed World War I to start, World War II to start, and it's happening again. So every person that joins the ranks of denial only accelerates the risk of conflict because then we fail to prepare and we fail to send the right signals, even at the last minute, to try and deter. Predatory aggression, which, if you can signal to it that there is a high chance it's not going to work, may well back off at that stage. So that's the first process: is recognizing the threat we're under, facing it, and mobilizing with an intention, so that the predator predator is deterred or at least thinks twice. There's no doubt that China has had a bit of a shock as to how hierarchical armed forces function against mission command. Ukrainian Western NATO constructs and the weapons we've used and the integration is, again, a big shock because, however, the Chinese have evolved away from the Soviet Union, their roots are in a Soviet military structure. That's why they're absorbing all their lessons, because they're vulnerable to the same errors. So it's a very difficult place where we are in, because we are exactly where our ancestors were into 1914 and 1939. Mm -hmm. And whatever we do is going to be kind of last ditch. And it dictates how we get through this by being aware. I mean, imagine if you're a Ukrainian, let's just go back and transport ourselves to just over 12 months ago. Most Ukrainians didn't really think he was gonna invade. They probably went through something akin to our society. You know, a lot of people eating the grass, refusing to listen to the sheepdogs. A few people saying, hey man, this is really gonna happen. But you can't really believe it's going to happen and your world suddenly turned upside down until suddenly that tank drives down or you've been occupied and all your adults are taken around the back and shot and it's too late. But we can learn those lessons that it happened to Ukraine and we're no different. Hmm. And so I know it's painful and I know, as we talked about, that the the lateral listening will already have cottoned on that there's a problem because that's the way that functional hard wiring works. And if you read and listen to my work, you'll understand in detail how those fears are a reality, and you can articulate them to others in a clear way. But those with a more linear mindset, and this is, you know, this is, believe me, you can do things that I can't do, and I can do things you can't do. So this isn't I'm better than you or anything like that. It's a symbiosis. But the natural disposition is for continuation that if I keep my head down if I ignore it it'll go away I won't have to act and next week will be the same as last week well we've got to this horrible point in human history when we're not there I'm afraid and in fact that mindset only makes the thing we fear more likely so we have to face our fears and they are real and they are scary and I may, maybe sound confident because I've watched this develop and I've had to you know, deal with what it feels like on the inside to see something coming, to warn against it and see it still coming towards us. I'm a father of children. And the thing that promoted my desire to write about you know, breaking the code of history and everything else is because I felt I had to share what I had. So our children had a chance rather than the Russian children that had been sent into a meat grinder with no chance. And I still live with that fear. And sadly, I feel like I haven't made a difference the difference i would have liked so i think that's the first thing is to preserve our way of life we need to look up stop eating the grass and realize the wolves are here so then what do we do
0: yes
1: okay we don't freeze and we don't run we don't freeze and we don't run away right that's the first thing let your nervous system absorb the reality of the shock Mm
0: -hmm.
1: even imagine what it's like to hear instead of Ukraine being invaded, imagine what it's like to know your own country has been invaded. Imagine it and live with it. Okay. Like absorb it. Because once that mammalian fear structure has been worked through, you can let your higher brain functions operate. So that's the worst part of the story. So let's just think about, you run a business, you're a CEO, and you're thinking, oh my God, my responsibility is to lead. You've Overcome the shock and that sense of what I do for my family. And you realize you are now responsible for the people you lead. The first thing is that you consider this is a reality, a high probability outcome. And what safeguards do you have? Well, the first strategy is essentially against the concept of bifurcation. So how does my business run? How do my supply chains work? And what's going to happen when those supply chains, like when they intersect with China's sphere of influence? Is there an alternative source? Can I create stockpiles that give me cushion to adapt? What do I do with my product? Is it still viable in this new world? Will people still want it? Okay, so that's the first thing. The next thing is, let's take this a stage further. So I buy my product from Australia. And, uh, instead of China, same product, theoretically, ship goes to Australia, not China, and it comes back with my product. Well, that'll work as long as it's a peace, peaceful bifurcation. So now we add the next layer, what happens if global conflict breaks out? Well, you first of all need to have someone who can explain to you how that conflict looks. And that's one of the things I think we've highlighted. And I have a, a whole working set of theories of where the intersection points are. And then you need to go to the next level of, okay, so I can get my product from Australia, but the ship won't make it because it gets torpedoed around the tip of Africa.
0: That's right.
1: So now you need to think about that level.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: the next thing that's important is that the third level is assuming conflict has broken out. It will. Not, I do not believe this is going to be a nuclear conflict. Not for many years. This is going to be a protracted struggle. Like there was in the Pacific conflict, the Chinese take the Asian basin and they resource themselves from Russia over land. They build weapons of their manufacturing base, we build weapons of our manufacturing base, and we're in a giant race as to who can get there first. So, we're going to see command economies start to dominate over free economies. So, I think there's probably going to be a hybrid there, and that hybrid is essentially free market. Command economies. So you'll find you have a factory and your factory makes metal widgets. Well, that's really interesting because what you want to think about is, is there a dual use? How would my organization adapt itself like some did to make you know, protective equipment in the COVID crisis? How do I start adapting myself to make the weapons of war or the instruments that provide our, our, our mobilized economy a way to work? And so you have a plan. Now, if you can come up with a plan because you have an adaptable dual-use construct, you're looking good. Unfortunately, if you're making pink bows for birthday parties, you might find your demand is suddenly about to dry up. Maybe not, actually, because we'll still celebrate birthday parties, but something facetious along the lines of, you know, something that is just a value-added thing that we enjoy but we don't need. Well, then you really do have an interesting issue because what you don't want to do is carry on run out of money lose everything then you want to decide whether you can go take your organization or business into hibernation and what does hibernation look like where you keep enough reserves that you can hibernate through it so the so and i what you're going to do is think of the worst and then everything else before gets better and those are the general pieces of architecture That strategically, I would suggest that people should be working their way through and and really, you know, having a very good idea of what that looks like, because that's what leadership is. And you should have a strategic planning subset, should be a lateral person. And then once that lateral plan has been constructed, you need basically a linear person to look at the details. For example, how does that ship transit from Australia? Could it go somewhere else? Could it go you know more towards the South Pole and up again and avoid the obstructions of of the Chinese and Russian Navy who've managed to get their ships into you know Cape Town as we watch them quietly you know have exercises. So there are thoughts like that and this is the time to have those because and the other thing is if you have assets in China, personally, I'd be having a fire sale because whatever whatever you get out now is more than you will get out when this process happens. So it's about moving before others, because when everyone else moves, as we saw, if you just look at the lessons from the bifurcation and extraction of Russia from our Western economy, how many people lost their businesses, fingers, football teams? I mean, the lessons are there. We've already seen them. So this shouldn't be too difficult to imagine. We're not in, it's harder to imagine prior to Ukraine than it is now. So this is the big shake for our business leaders, is if it happened once, Why can't it
0: happen again? And are you prepared? And I know we're talking about a specific situation, David, and and I always find it difficult that people are never prepared for the worst. You know, they're always looking at the world, or most of my clients are looking at at situations in the world with, I mean, even even everyday boardroom conflicts, I cannot get them to imagine and I'm seeing so many people at the moment who, who've gone into business perhaps with friends or family or relatives assuming the assumption it's all going to be fine and that it isn't and it falls apart. And so that is, you know, I can't I can't even get people to comprehend that an everyday interpersonal conflict might happen and might take their business down, let alone an international global Well look, you know, this is the great thing. And, and you've got to remember, and so this is the next piece
1: is look at Ukraine, their surprise was total. They almost lost their country and they adapted and responded in the most remarkable way. And they're still alive and they're fighting and they're gaining the upper hand. So this is my next piece. I mean, wars are a challenge between in an environment of entropy that, that tests two societies and the winner mobilizes themselves with more lateral processes that they resort to a greater degree to apply force to win so it isn't over in the first shock it's just the beginning and so don't think that because the word war incites quite rightly fear it all is over at the reality of the start that's just the beginning the trick is in a western society you have to pray that you survive the first onslaught because we're so slow to adapt Dominated by this liberal optimism, that, you know, and if we were ever struck so hard the first time, we wouldn't ever get up. And I think that's why the Pearl Harbor scenario for Japan felt like a big blow. And their estimation of the durability of America was completely wrong. And what kind of blow could they have, you know, created with technology and resources? And the answer is there is none, there's nothing they could really do to stop this monster as Yamamoto described it from coming alive they never but they didn't have a choice they were constricted by the embargoes of resource and they were going to choke anyway and so they decided to go before they choked a horrible situation of of two sides and impossible dynamic well what are the lessons today we need to be strong enough and aware enough to deal with the first onslaughts of what comes next And then we need to have plans to adapt quickly, not over six months or a year, because speed of adaptation is also about how we then come out the best side of things. So I would appeal to a sense of optimism, having painted this difficult picture we're in, that the human spirit comes alive. And this is really interesting. When you read about accounts of conflict, those people at the front edge go through absolute hell. If you're in an infantry battalion against another one, your chances of getting out of that mess are very low. But there's a tale of people with different survival probabilities. There's a population that all feel they come together. There's all sorts of dynamics which we tend not to talk about. And it's all about social coherence, sense of purpose, a duty which we have lost in our society thanks to Western decline where itself is more important than the duty to the system. And I think all of those things, when you enable them, That's what defines this collective national energy of resistance and success with the right
0: leadership in conflict. And it is finding that leadership, David. And I know we talked about that before, but um, I feel as much as possible, we are not looking at our political leaders for leadership. We are looking at we're looking within ourselves. We're looking within our own communities. We are looking for those who have that vision, that strategy, that lateral approach. That we can follow who say there is a way, there is an optimistic so, way, there is a and, way to
1: develop. And you're exactly right. So, if you look at Chamberlain's government, it was an example of linear construct walking into it, wrong signals made it worse. And then, instead of saying I'm not equipped for this, there's this other sense of denial I can do this, I can do it. I know what I'm talking about. I've been doing this for ages. I fought in the first World war. Of course, I can do Well, actually, this is when, honestly, a, a serious look in the mirror. And sense of awareness to say, am I really that wartime leader? And if I'm not that wartime leader, who is? Is something I would ask of our politicians who are inappropriately in power right now. The great thing for Britain, and why Britain and I've argued, and you know, most people think I'm sort of nationalist zealot because I view Brexit as a lateral program that Britain needed to do to adapt and expand, and actually Britain's role in the declining linear West was disproportionate because its lateralization gave it leadership and a more expansive perspective. And when people turn around and say Brexit, what a waste of time, I'll say, okay, so I want to counter this. So the expansion or the rejuvenation of British national energy started with Thatcher. That was the trough post-Empire. And obviously, we know that that accelerating point was success in the Falklands. And lots of Europeans with have us believe it was a little colonial legacy of us trying to hold on to a piece of land and what the hell was britain doing going 8,000 miles and fighting for it don't they realize they're not power anymore well here's the rub in the kremlin they looked at britain and thought oh my goodness that assumption that capitalism is weak is fundamentally flawed because look what they did against all the odds and britain is a nuclear power enmeshed in nato And we've always believed that we could roll our massive army into Europe. We would run over the NATO forces. And at the critical moment, when all they had left was nuclear weapons, they'd balk. And they concluded that Thatcher wouldn't balk. And if Thatcher didn't balk, it would roll all the others in and the whole thing would fail. And so they removed, like completely ratcheted down, ever the idea of an invasion of Europe, thanks to the success of the Falklands. So the first success of Britain... Britain's rise in the system is that the Cold War stayed cold. That is a major success. The second success is essentially lateralization begat Boris. With all his flaws, he was the first prime minister to step in and support Ukraine. And without Britain's support to roll America and, and Europe in, it would have lost. So we can now safely say that Britain's involvement in this later stage of evolution, which is far from complete and, you know, is really will come on to a major disappointment as compared to the potentiality of what we represent. We saved Ukraine by our Brexit process of naturalization. Now, they are two huge, meaningful footprints on human history in the past 50 years.
0: So I'm just uh, just summarising, really, I suppose, what we've talked about, really the fact that by human nature, we're very much in denial and we disbelieve that things are about to change. We're Um, very optimistic and so we should be, because without being optimistic, you don't build
1: things. You don't overcome challenge. But there comes a stage when reality has to be infused with that.
0: Yeah, and we have to have a vision of a better future, don't we? Otherwise, what is there to get up for every day? So having a vision of a better future, but knowing that we need as businesses or as individuals to have a strategy, to have a plan. That's always my message, uh, even within organisations, not talking about global conflict, but just talking about everyday conflict in the boardroom or in the workplace. You need to have a strategy. You need to have a plan in place. So you know what you're going to do next and next and next. And you've got the people in place that you can do it. And you've got a plan A and plan B. I know know you Uh, like to sail, David, but I think about it. It's like sailing. You, you You don't sort of set out in a motorboat. You set out and you go from A to B and you charge through whatever's coming at you or you don't. But in a sailing boat, you've got to adapt From minute to minute, haven't you? To the weather, to the wave, everything. And so you might decide halfway across that you're going now. You're diverting to Port C. Not you're not going to be. Now,
1: one of the things you just you're so right about it, and that's exactly how as a global forecaster I operate these variations. But there are also in some sail races, there's only one way to go. There's only one outcome that brings success. And that's a skill of identifying if it's there, take it. And if not, you walk up and you read the signs as you move. Now, we're in one side of the race course is extremely biased. Therefore, the outcome is pretty well predictable if you get to that side. Now, you mentioned the right people in place. So as, if we're talking to CEOs about what to do and how to do this, yes. then what is key in that process is that most organizations that haven't aren't startups and early stage, are predominantly now going to be led by more linear thinkers. And what you're looking at is a period of adaptation to changes, some of which I can predict and some I can't. And on the micro level of a business environment, you you need to drill down. So lateralizing your organization and bringing in lateral thinkers is part of the adaptation. And even if you don't think that way, and even if it's an affront to listen to someone who does, if you you desire to preserve your organization and be a leader that serves the organization and the shareholders, then you've got to find a way of living with that and finding the right solution. And so here's the interesting spoke about lateralization. Is not all lateral people are going to help you because we've had this extreme period where linear thinking dominates and for the past decade our system or two decades and so the lateral people have been ex- their exiles and as exiles their sense of anxiety has been increased enormously and they see rabbit holes where they're not there and they're not logical at times so they make themselves less suitable for the purpose when you bring them in and cummings was a good example he was never a real change agent he was someone that was lateral but no You know, just didn't have good judgment in the application of lateral thought. And that's really what we're talking about. Lateral thought plus the application of good judgment and a sense of personal security and root that means you're no longer projecting all the things you should have done and people should have seen for 20 years. You're in the moment, seeing the situation for what it is, helping to navigate through it. And so for those lateral people out there that have felt disenfranchised and you know unloved and all the other things they're going to have to be aware enough to deal with though that period of suffering and an ejection and any ceo who brings them in is going to have to be mindful of that to the point where you're maximizing this lateralness and it really makes a difference and and that is where management really comes in and the understanding of the psyche but, and that's the other challenge now in the Second World War, I mean, Churchill was right. Every All of the government organizations were moribund and stagnant. So the SOE came up and special forces rose and they pulled people out of prisons. And that really worked because, you know, they, they had all sorts of combat natural skills that had been suppressed in civilized society. And even Wagner's pulling people out of prisons, you know, if they just treated them properly and followed the rules that they promised and let them off, they might well have got away with it. But they didn't they just impress them forever and that whole thing has stopped so i say that because it isn't just find a lateral person because cummings was a lateral person and he was a disaster and he had disaster written all over him for the reasons that he was an exile and then he wasn't in mentally so we need to there's a lot of awareness that has to be navigated through in finding the right inputs and you know and for those that are lateral they need to do a lot of self-examination to make them. Now the time has been co- to calling them in, they've got to work through their their own issues to be functional. So, all of us have that in different ways. It's not unique, but I only highlighted as a process to be to be aware of.
0: And uh, and it's certainly one of the things I have to deal with in my work is managing that tension between lateral and linear thinkers at board level and so on, because that does create tension and conflict. So, I think that's one of the one. Uh, I, hon- I honestly think, you know, because all
1: good systems are symbiotic. So one of the things is, if, if I said to you, I just love detail, I just love pouring over a set of numbers all day long to find the one that's wrong, I don't think I'm being very true to myself as a lateral person, because it's unlikely those two things go together. And you'll find that Sunak doesn't believe in strategic thinking, because he doesn't do that too. So it, it exemplifies the process that we have difference. So I might be good at mapping strategically, like making linkages and connections, but I also need and to work with people that could then do the detailed structures of implementation. And that, that isn't my bidding. I want them to buy into the architecture beforehand, but that's the thing about human mechanisms. In times of steadiness, where change doesn't happen, you actually want more linear thinking in the perpetration and you need lateral people to just be to be quietly watchful, but realize it's not their time. They don't just stick their hand up like pick me donkey because their time isn't there. And conversely, in entropic change, it's the other way around. So it all comes down to an awareness of how we're different, awareness of the power of our symbiotic dynamics and not some giant competition, which it seems to be happening between lateral and linear. You're an, idiot, and you're an idiot, and you're an idiot, and you're an idiot, and you're an idiot. And the environment basically decides which idiot is out of office. And so that's not the future. And it's not what we need to do to be, to create an effective response in our society.
0: I think this is really helpful and very timely, David. And I think I'll just summarize quickly what I think we've talked about, and then maybe you can give us a, a, a final word. We've really talked about the fact that, you know, our our instinctive approach to a coming crisis is, is to have our head down and deny it for, for the majority of the human race and, and, and businesses too. So to deny danger and to disbelieve it, not to have a plan, but really you're encouraging everyone and particularly businesses and CEOs to be aware of what the worst could be, not to, not to have optimism because there is a lot of, place for optimism and planning for the future, but to be able to plan for that future with your eyes open and to have a strategy now for surviving what might come, and also to understand the place of lateral versus linear thinking in your boardroom and how you might manage that, because some lateral thinkers are so maverick that they actually wouldn't do you any good so to be able to manage the dynamics between your lateral and linear thinkers and to find the lateral thinkers that you need to help you to strategize and then you're able to manage the manage the terrain shall we say yes and ensure that
1: uh, you know it's up to a leader to understand the terrain and then Hopefully, see a way through it, and therefore they can convey that optimism to the people they lead. Yes, and it's no use just hoping you'll find a way through. It's a sense of sometimes when you start a sailboat race, you don't know what the course is going to be. You know you've prepared your boat, you know you've built USPs that give it an edge over another boat in some conditions, and you're slower in others. You look down the boat and you look at the crew, and the crew doesn't have individuals who energetically suck the energy out of everyone else everyone is completely in the space where they support the crew it's not about ego and this organism becomes one you enter into the start and it's amazing because you know that given 95 percent of all ranges you will come near the top to win and that's what you want it's the same analogy you've built your business so it's adaptable you have a team that works with you you have people that do process at the front of the boat and thinking at the back of the boat and they're symbiotic and they don't quite understand what they do with each other but they try to but they work as a group and you as a ceo or leader or skipper gets the ultimate choice of whether whether a course of action makes sense and so your ultimate override judgment is really important and boris even in these latest whatsapp shows his deficiency when he's shown a chart over the second lockdowns, which is not even relevant, and he couldn't use a sense of scientific intellectual logic to say, how can you use this to justify an action I don't believe in? And there
0: is his failure in one go. David, do you have a, a sort of mantra that you can leave us with, something that leaves people with sort of hope, but something, one sort of phrase or something that you think would encapsulate what you're trying to encourage us to do? So I always love the thought, you know, energy
1: follows thought. Mm. So what we're really talking about is changing one's thoughts about the predicament, Yes. about where we are. And once you change one's thoughts to overcome fear, to see something you didn't expect and certainly don't want to go through as a reality, you are now starting to point where your thoughts can create outcomes through your energy in a material sense to change things for the people you lead
0: fantastic thank you where can people find you david i know there's a lot of information on your website could you just remind us where people can find your materials
1: so if you go to david m-u-r-r-i-n you'll go to the website on the website you'll find an index and there are everything that i talk about has theory behind it rather than I fell out of bed today and I talked about one thing and tomorrow something different. There is complete structure in everything that I do on Global Forecaster and the structures of those human mechanisms are explained. And then you can also, you can access any podcast that we've done in one place um, and you can subscribe to Murray Nations. Now, I strongly urge anyone in a position that has responsibility or not, who is curious to subscribe, it's Less than a newspaper a month, and it is about predictive outcomes. For example, we've been ahead of all that's happened in Ukraine since the first five days, months ahead of what happened next. And that's why I'm months ahead of what I think the Chinese are about to do, that intrinsic understanding through, I think it's 34 distinct marinations of the evolution of this conflict. And from there, you become more forewarned. Newspapers confer absolutely no ability or knowledge, or predictability. In fact, all they are, to me, is a mosaic of information that's useful. And then you have to reform the mosaic into something useful in a construct that truly explains human behavior, and then lets you see it and then adapt to it. So that's the tool I really recommend. And if you find yourself as a CIO wanting to go further, then we have a whole strategist consultancy program, which is involved in the strategic consultancy of change. Um, And for example, one of my key drivers is a process of lateralization to adapt. And so there's a whole campaign on the website about what do you do to lateralize your society? What do you do to lateralize your business? I've been involved in the armed forces in a program for cutting edge, and design programs for cutting edge organizations in the military to lateralize, because this is the rub, is that there are no linear thinkers in the command structure the decision-making command structure in Ukraine, they're all lateral. War has created adaptation and lateralization. So for an adapted business, that's exactly it. And I think those linear people which still sit in command positions have embraced the fact that they command lateral thinkers successfully. What doesn't survive is I am linear, I am always linear, and I only do it this way. Because that's the fastest way to lead your organization to destruction,
0: as the Russians are finding in Donbass. So thank you very much, David. People can find you. You've got a massive information which can really help people to plan, even to um, adapt this uh, lateral and strategic thinking. David, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on again. um, I know it's a slightly gloomy topic, but I hope we've managed to find um, the optimism and energy that could come out of this.
1: Well, it's always a pleasure to speak to you, Jane. And uh, I always say to the people, believe it or not, I am an optimist at heart. Just because I've had to paint a realistic picture doesn't defy that. And I think we we as dem- democracies are going to get through this. But denial means that the first hit is bigger than I'd like it to be. So um, stay with it. Be courageous. Remember, our ancestors have got through the same things. Find the same depths of inner courage and, uh, and we will navigate through this.
0: Thank you, David. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues. Please do subscribe to the Barefoot Mediator podcast series. And if you would like to access my free video series for managing in times of change, challenge and crisis, and download a PDF copy of my book, How to Beat Bedlam in the Boardroom and Boredom in the Bedroom, please go to janegum.co.uk slash video. The link is in the show notes.